Thank you, son. Genesis 3. Last two weeks ago, we uh, picked up, we left off, I believe, at Genesis 3.13. I heard some good things about uh, Brother Arthur preaching last week. Um, some people said it was really helpful, it was real encouraging, and I'm very thankful that he came. And um, I'm told, I don't know if he said as much, but I'm told that he has a heart for church planning and for the cities, and so... Um, Maybe God would use him to plant churches or maybe to help church planners. I don't know all that God will use him for, but um, I think it was a good experience for us and hopefully a good experience for him. Genesis 3 is our passage, and we're going to be reading in verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. Um, we ended up with the blame game. We talked about the, you know, the husband blaming Eve and then Eve blaming the serpent. And so the blame game has gone on, although they do, both Adam and Eve do admit at the end that I ate. And so in verse 14 is where we pick up, and um, we're going to read this. Do we have a couple people willing to read today? Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 24. We have one, two, and I will read as well. So how about um, Esther, you can read 14 through 16. Deborah, you can read 17 through 19, and then I'll read 20 through 24. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and also thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. For Adam and also for his wife, the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from where he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Let's have prayer together. Brother Rosario, would you pray for us? Amen. All right, so as we get started, um, remind me if you think of it at the end, I have a couple passages in the New Testament that I'd like to look at in light of this, this text here. Um, this is not the most uh, encouraging of texts, is it? <laughs> we read about the curse and all that, that went on, but I want us to remember something, that God created the order of the cursed world. We make a big deal about how he created the order of creation. He put the earth together, right? He set up things how they ought to be, but he also set up the order of the cursed world, and so he's the one that designed the lines. He's the one that um, laid out these different results of the fall, and just a couple things to, to think of here. The death that God promised them happened immediately as they were separated from God, and their relationship was harmed. However, and I think we don't always see this when we read the passage, the relationship is at least partially repaired in the text. We see God taking steps 
to continue a relationship with man immediately in the text. And we sometimes miss this part. Um, Another thing that I want to just bring to our attention as we think of all this is that some people teach today that death equals annihilation. Whoops, now I've got to spell annihilation, don't I? I'll give you my best shot. Annihilation. Where that means you, the idea behind annihilation is you no longer exist. There's nothing to you. There's no soul, no body, no nothing. You disappear from existence is the idea of annihilation. Well, what I find is that God promised them they would die. They sinned, and they died because God kept his word, but they did not cease to exist, right? Rather, what took place is that there was a separation with God, and it was a cursed existence, but it was existence. And God sent them a cursed existence, and and this is punishment. But if we think of annihilation... The concept behind annihilation is that God, people bill it as though God is compassionate because he obliterates people from existence. But what this would actually mean is that it would be a release from any affliction of sin. It's, annihilation is not an affliction, it's a reprieve. And the essential lie of Satan that we've been discussing working up to this is that you can sin with God and get away with it that it won't harm you, that you'll actually be better off. And this is the big lie of Satan. Satan says sin is not as bad as God says. And Satan tries to sap Scripture of its meaning and change and twist Scripture and make people think that God's different than he is and that his promises are different than he says. And over and over, Satan tries to tell us that sin will not hurt, it won't hurt too much, or it can easily be overcome as just a little problem, you don't need God's help. But rather, what I find in the text is that God says, no, that is not the case, but I am a gracious God, and my first, God's first plan for us is always to obey him. That's always his first plan. But he always, knowing our weakness, has a second plan, and that is, if you do break my law, this is how things will be afterwards. And I'm thankful that he has a second plan for us, because there have been plans I've been on plan too, you know? in a big way or a small way. And um, God is a gracious God. And so even in sin, there is grace and forgiveness, but we, don't need, we, we must not think it's just easy or there's no problem, right? And one of the reasons we have these Bible stories is to show us God does forgive, but sin also brings pain. And we see the pain here um, in, in the text. Now, with regard to this topic, it is essential for there to be eternal punishment for God to be taken seriously. If there was no eternal punishment, sin would be a reasonable option. It would be, a, a, it would be no big deal to reject God's word because at the end, we would just be obliterated out of existence and it, it wouldn't really be that big a deal. And I think the concept of hell is what causes some people to take God seriously. And the fact that God would give a path out of hell, people take God seriously. Um, so in the text, uh, this is kind of some bigger picture things. But I hope you'll see that we are reading the unfolding of what Satan said they would have. And Satan said, your life's going to be better, your life's going to be better. And the truth was, it was not better. It was worse. And we're going to read about the curse. So, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. A couple things here. We, we find a curse upon the snake first, right? So God started with Adam with his questions. Where are you, Adam? And, you know, why have you done this? He started with Adam first because Adam was responsible. But then he moved to Eve, and then he, well, wait a minute. Then he asked some questions of the snake. No, no, actually he didn't. He didn't ask any questions of the snake, did he? You, did you catch that? There were no questions of the snake. He asked the questions of Adam. He asked questions of Eve. But he does not ask to the serpent, what is this that you have done? There is no path of reconciliation for the snake. There is no, hey, why, how could you have done this? You know, There's none of that. And when I say the snake, there's the physical animal and then there's Satan inhabiting the animal. 
And it appears that God has punished Satan, but he has also laid a curse upon the snake itself. I think as a reminder for us of the permanent damage of sin. Um, maybe more than, than, you know, Satan's not going to change his ways or reform or anything. But I think it's a lesson for us. Um, and so it does say of the snake, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go. And I think Matt had asked a question about did, did the snake have a choice or did the snake choose to let Satan come in? And um, I really said I didn't know, but it is, it is true in, in, in kind of pointing toward maybe it did, is that there is a curse that comes on the snake. So perhaps there was some sort of, I don't know, can animals choose something like that? It seems a little far-fetched in some ways. But God treats the snake very differently than Adam and Eve. I think that's important to notice. God treats us different than animals, yes, but God treats us different from Satan. Aren't we thankful? Yes, I'm thankful. Because Satan does not have an out, he doesn't have a path. It's simply a curse and nothing more. Um, In a way, really, if we end at verse 14, it's just a curse somewhat similar to Adam and Eve's curse concept. But if we look at verse 15, it's much further than just a simple curse. In fact, God basically declares war on Satan. And so let's do verse 15 and we'll take questions after this. He says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a wonderful verse. This is a very interesting verse. First of all, notice that God does not say, I will put enmity between me and you. It's not what God says, because there already was enmity between God and Satan. That's not something new. But now God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the descendant of the woman. And the word in the Old King James is seed and descendant. That's that idea. We understand it. But you know, it jumped out at me when I was studying this is we're very familiar with the seed of the woman or the descendants of the woman. That comes pretty easy. But notice he says of Satan, he says the descendants of Satan. Right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring. Who are the offspring of Satan? What? Devils? As in demons? Right? That's one possibility. And what's the other? What's that? Snakes? Okay. All right. That's a suggestion. Okay. Yes, there is that Genesis 6 take of the mixing of, yes? Okay, lost people, right? That's another. There's, these are all different suggestions, but I, um, certainly I think demons is possible and that Satan and his angels, right? But the, the problem with that is the Bible never teaches that those are his offspring because they were created directly by God, right? They're angels. So I have a hard time with the demon view because it, They're not technically his offspring. If we understand the Genesis 6 idea, which I tend to not go with the the mixing of the demons with the humans thing, um, I'm more the idea that it's probably the, the humans who have the sin nature and are not the Lord's. So for instance, in John 8, 44, ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. And so we have the, the humanity that is not the Lord's and the humanity that is the Lord's, and it's a reference of, of that. Now, I'm not saying that is easy to determine, all right? And I'm not saying it's the only way you could understand it. So there's a couple different ways. But what I do see here is God is telling Satan, I'm going to put an enemy relationship, right? You, we have to remember, what Satan tried to do is he was already at war with God, and he came to humanity and he said, ah, I'm going to take them down. I'm going to get them to sin. I'm going to get them opposed to God. And we're going to fight God together. And he stepped in and he did his thing. And God is now telling him, guess what, buddy? You have not won this war. I'm going to put a war between you and the seed of this woman. There's going to be a war between the, these, these two. And this is not just, I'm not just walking away from my creation. I'm just not walking away from humanity. There is going to be war. And so we live in a world of war. Spiritual warfare, right? Good and evil on the battlefront. And um, this 
Another thing that jumps out to me about the verse as a whole is God says this before he places a curse on Adam, before he places a curse on Eve. God says this first. He says this to the snake before he even gets to them. I am going to um, put this enemy relationship between the two of you. Now, we need to talk a little bit more about what the, the second portion of the verse means. The second portion says, and it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay. So both of these two sides are going to bruise each other, right? So the bruising is going back and forth, but the difference is the location of where this bruising happens, right? One of them is bruised on the heel, and the heel is being bruised is, is Satan does the bruising on the heel, right? So this is Eve's side. Let's put Eve's descendants here. They're going to have a bruised heel, but Satan's descendants, they are going to have the bruised what? Head. Now, Maybe, let's look at this a little more carefully. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, Eve is a woman, and it says his, right? You will bruise his heel. So this is obviously referring to the descendant. But on this side, when it talks about the head, it says it will bruise your head, which is more directly Satan himself, right? So when we remove that, we have a descendant of Eve whose heel is bruised, and then we have Satan whose head is bruised, okay? Now let's talk about this bruising for a minute. How many of you have ever gotten a bruise on your head? Anybody ever gotten a bruise on their head? Okay, he has. Some of you are like, I've taken good care of my head. All this life, I've never had a bruise up here. Um, quick story, my sister... My, my older sister and I were playing baseball together, and um, she was swinging the bat, I was throwing the ball, and my other sister had put her bike on the ground behind where we were playing bat and ball. And she went up to get her bike, and we were not paying any attention to her. I threw the ball. My sister went like this, and she cranked that bat around, and she landed right in the head of my sister. I watched her drop to the ground. She had a big goose egg. She was walking in going, oh. I'm knocked out, I'm knocked out, I know I'm knocked out. I truly thought she was going to die. I cried, I was about eight or nine years old. She had this big old goose egg on her head, and it was like you could see veins, and shockingly enough, because of our whatever, we were at my grandparents' house, we never went to ER or anything. They put ice on it. Now, my grandma did call my parents and was talking to them, and we were like, you can't go to sleep, you can't go to sleep. We were doing all the remedies. Thankfully, she lived, she's doing okay as far as we know. Sometimes we bring that up and we say, yeah, it affected you, but it's a joke, okay? So she's fine. But that bruise was serious. It, it looked like it could have been serious, but it ultimately was not. It was just a bruise. This word bruise, I want to take a moment and talk about it because the word bruise here has a, several different meanings, and sometimes it goes a little further than just what we think of as a bruise. Case in point. In Isaiah chapter 42, there's a prophecy of Jesus, and I believe it's, um, let me just turn over and I can read it, and it's a prophecy of Jesus that he will come as the servant of Jehovah, but it says of him, a bruised reed shall he not break. This is Isaiah 42, and it's verse 3, verse 3, Isaiah 42, 3, a bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. So the question is, what is a bruised reed? Do we know what a reed is? Okay. A reed is something that is like a grass and it's a little thicker and it, you, they would let it dry and then they would use it to weave baskets and things. So the bruised reed does not just mean a reed that has a spot on it, like we think of a spot, but it actually has the idea of to crush. And so the bruised reed would be strong except there would be a spot of it that was smashed and then it wouldn't hold its shape. It would flop, right? And it would have a weak spot because it was crushed. And here in Isaiah 42.3, the prophecy is a bruised reed shall he not break. 
If somebody was weaving a basket and they picked up a reed and it was crushed in a spot where it was broken or where it was floppy, they would toss it aside and find a good reed and keep going. Well, the beautiful picture for us is that Jesus doesn't toss out people that have problems. He loves them, right? It's a wonderful, beautiful uh, thing. And in fact, there's a whole book by Richard Sibbs, a Puritan called The Bruised Reed. And it talks about how Jesus loves sinners. It's beautiful. But that word bruised there has this idea of crushed. And if we read this prophecy and we just think, oh, Satan's going to get a little bruise on his head. That is not the idea. It's this idea of to crush. And he's saying your heel will be crushed. The, the descendant of Eve will have a heel that gets crushed by you, Satan. But that heel will crush your head. And it's a message of victory. It's a message of triumph over Satan. And, um, you know, it, it's, I think it's a verse that has so much in it that we don't always see, right? It, it's a little bit difficult, a little bit veiled, but this is not a, a, a statement that one day Satan will have a little bruise that goes away. It's his idea of his head will be crushed. And he, Satan is going to attack this descendant of Eve, and he's going to afflict this descendant of Eve, but this descendant of Eve is going to have the victory over well, who, who's the descendant of Eve? Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Lord Jesus. See, and, and this is what, you know, some theology people call the proto-evangelum and so on. And, you know, the first reader may have not understood, oh, this is Jesus, right? But as truth unfolded more and more, and then the text was read back after Christ came, it was very evident. Do you remember what I said in the message today, those of you that were up here? Jesus said of the cross, now is the prince of this world cast out, right? That's that defeat of Satan that happened at the cross. And so Genesis 3.15 is one of the first gospel verses in the Bible that speaks of a defeat of Satan and a crushing of his head. And um, uh, later in the um, New Testament, it says in Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So in Romans 16, this concept is still spoken of in the future tense. And so we can understand this in a sense because Satan was defeated at the cross, but we also know he's running around the world today, right? But there is coming a day where he'll be cast out of heaven, cast down to earth, and then eventually he's cast out of earth and put down in the uh, pit, right? The uh, bottomless pit. But then once from there, he's finally cast into the lake of fire. So there's a progressive victory over Satan that's more and more realized as time goes by. But I'm thankful that we call Satan a defeated foe. And now, in a broad sense, we are the descendants of Eve. And we can have victory over Satan, how? Through Christ, right? He lives in us and we can triumph over him. But it's because of what he did that we have the power to defeat Satan. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, let's think about this carefully. Has Eve conceived yet at this time? Some of you are questioning. The answer is no. She has not yet conceived. Adam and Eve have not conceived yet. Uh, that is yet to come. The Bible will give us a record um, in Genesis 4 of the first child they have together, which is Cain, Abel. Abel is first. Cain killed Abel. I always try to tell myself, Cain killed Abel. All right, so Abel was born first and then Cain, right? So Cain was first and then Abel? That's right, it says for Cain. That's why I got to read ahead in my study, okay. But, but the point is, is that she's going to conceive later. She has not yet conceived. But here, in the presence of Adam and Eve, God places a curse on this snake. And he says, one day the seed of this woman will crush your head. She will stomp on you. And then later, Adam and Eve conceive a child. Now, they did that because, A, God had said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, Genesis 1.28. But I think they also now had a second motive to conceive a child. And that is, through our children, one day, our descendants, there will come someone that will crush that snake, that one that got us in the garden. We will get him back <laughs> through... <laughs> through having children and God's promise. God has given us this promise. So the promise is to Satan, but the promise is in the ears of us, right? It's in our ears. And, and we get to see this promise that one day Satan will be defeated through the descendants of that very woman, Eve. All right, questions or comments, verse 14 and 15. Yes, you can run around with that, Tim. 
Deborah's first. Anyone after Deborah? Okay. Going back to the death equals annihilation. Okay. And people doing away with themselves, they think that they're going to be doing suffering to themselves. Yes. Yes. Very sad. It is very sad. And I think that's one reason it's such a dangerous doctrine because it really causes a complacency amongst people that, you know, I can reject God, I can do my own thing, and one day I'll just kind of check out. And um, God's trying to be very serious with us, and it is very serious in his word, and so it kind of saps that of all its strength. Anyone else? Okay, verse 16 then says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, let's talk about this. This one is maybe one of the more difficult ones to really break down, but it is interesting to me that the promise of verse 15 was about her seed, her conception. And the only area that we find cursed if we take them as one. Now some... The sorrow and the conception, some people separate into two curses. So she has the curse of sorrow and the curse of conception. Um, I don't know, I, because the next phrase then says, in sorrow you shall bring forth children, right? The next phrase links them together. I also, I, I just struggle because conception itself is not a curse, right? And I think God designed it before the fall. So I, we wouldn't just think of conceiving as a curse. And then also sorrow, uh, is not, uni- is not limited to women. I mean, sorrow as a thing. So I tend to put them as one. And if it is indeed one then, um, this part of the curse is about conception. But then there's something about the husband. And so both of these, this curse is upon, in a sense, the two main relationships, right? The husband relationship and the children relationship. Both of them are cursed in the fall here. Now, it does say that in sorrow she'll conceive children, but in a sense, we also don't think of it in the sense of conception itself being a sorrowful event. Usually we think of the birth being the sorrowful event. Well, I just wonder if it isn't saying conceiving children as a genre will bring sorrow in birth, in raising them, in the whole aspect of things. Um, But it also then says that the relationship with the husband will be changed, and her phrase given here is, desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Um, In general, we do, in the New Testament, it says that the woman is the weaker vessel, right? It uses that phrase, the weaker vessel. And some people put that in connection with this phrase of sorrow, in that women sometimes bear more emotional pain than men. Um, That's possible, although I will be quick to point out men do have emotions too, um, maybe just not to the degree of women. But he gives this curse on Eve, and he says there's going to be sorrow, there's conception, and in sorrow you shall conceive. And he says your desire shall be for your husband. So these, these different curses, I think, affect the marriage relationship, and the family relationship, and there's sorrow that's based on, you know, both to some extent, but we see it specifically with regard to children. With the husband, sorrow is not the main emphasis. Rather, with the husband, the two words used is that she will desire, she will have desire for him, and then in connection with that desire, he will rule over you, okay? Now, I think I, I link the desire to the ruling, okay? And what I mean by that is that the, the desire that the woman has is in relation to the ruling. Um, I don't, like some people say it means sexual desire or you desire, you know, attractiveness or things. And I'm like, well, this is a part of the curse. That's not, it's not really a curse application in my opinion. I mean, um, the, the idea that you'd be attracted to your husband is not, that's not a curse. Um, On the flip side, though, when it says he shall rule over you and you will desire your husband, I understand that to mean just the you will desire 
to rule as he rules, or you will desire freedom from his rule, that you don't want to be under your husband, and that that will be a curse to you. Um, just that the fact that it has to be that way will be a curse to you. Um, there is a whole lot that we could say about this. Um, we won't get into the whole weeds of it all, but I just want to say that in today's society, there is a strong push against husbands being the head of the home. And in a sense, it's always been there, but especially with some of the new feminism and some of the feminism that's getting into Christianity, there is a push um, that, that says that the husband and the wife are the same, they're completely equal in, in position, and the biblical teaching is that they're equal in value, but they're different in role. And um, there is some conflict. If you've read on marriage materials, you maybe know the terms, but there's complementarian and there's egalitarian. And the egalitarians teach that a husband and wife have, don't have a distinction in their roles. And thus, the husband does not lead. There is no submission or obeying. That is, uh, they say it's antithetical to God and the Bible and things. And I just 100% disagree with that. Like, I think Genesis 3.16 is one very clear example that says the husband is going to rule over the wife. In this new, remember how I said that God set up the system in the fall? Remember how I said that? If you want to make the fall and its effects worse in your life, just try to live like these things don't exist. And you will make the effects of the fall worse. And this is one, if you want to think that children will never bring you any sorrow and there's never a challenge there, if you want to live that way, you can live that way, but it will, it will unfold itself to be worse than if you had lived within the structure of how God has set up the world. Um, so this is kind of the twofold curse to Eve. Is there any question or comment for their application? Um, both of the uh, wives have a question here. Um, anyone else? Okay. Yeah, well, that's fine. Start there. I was actually talking to the mom about this on Tuesday. Okay. That, um, and just, I just was thinking about how it was interesting in Titus. Paul, what was Paul? Was Paul who wrote Titus? Yes. Younger women. younger women to teach them how to love their children and love their husbands mm -hmm. to their children. But I just thought it was very interesting because I feel like, just like you just taught, that the curse is broken down into children categories, husband categories. Yes. And, you know, he didn't say you need to teach them how to make bread and to, mm. you know, clean your house or whatever. Right. He told them, love your husband, love your children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's those same two categories showing up in the New Testament where the curse has been affected. Go ahead, Tim. The, yes. Yes, and to specifically address those same categories. Good. Not to make bread and stuff like that. Isaiah talks about how a man wipes the dish, right? <laughs> oh, that's right. Bringing out the scripture, the man wipes the dish. So before the fall, like Adam and Eve were totally like, obviously we're equal, but there was neither one of them were a leader. Okay, now that's an excellent question, an excellent question, and I do believe that Adam was already the leader in the sense that he was responsible. But here, I think the idea is that of conflict, and the conflict is that she will desire. Before the fall, she would not have desired to be in his place, and he would not have had to rule over her. Now, this really brings up the discussion about submission, because the, in my opinion, submission, the, the purpose of submission is that when there is a conflict that is not, when, when you come to agreement, there is no conflict. There's no, you know, disagreement at that point. If two people come to an agreement on their own, it's just like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But submission to me really hits, rubber hits the road is when there is a disagreement and you don't come to a, a conclusion. And I understand the Bible to teach that in those situations, after you've prayed, after you've talked about it, after you've worked it through, 
which I want to be very clear, you should do those things. You should take time to try to understand each other and hear each other out and all that. But at the end of the day, I do believe the husband is responsible to make the final decision. And this is where the egalitarians just get very disturbed and they begin to say, well, that's just wrong. Well, the Bible to me says that the husband is responsible. For instance, even right here, when they sinned, God didn't come to Eve, and Eve was the one that first took the fruit, right? You would think he would have been coming after her, right? Eve, what have you done, right? But no, he came to Adam, and Adam was the one, we'll talk about this when we look at the New Testament at the end, but Adam was the one that had received the original command. Adam was the one that had either told Eve, or God had later told it to Eve with Adam there, because Adam and Eve both knew that each other knew that they shouldn't do that. And so Adam was a responsible one, and when God comes calling, he comes for Adam. So I do believe that before the fall, Adam was still meant to be the leader. If you read in 1 Timothy 2, it says that one of the reasons that a wife should not do, let's see here, it says, for Adam was created first, and then Eve. And then it says Eve was deceived in the transgression. This is one of the verses I want to look at later. But it, he appeals to the created order as to why it was. Another evidence to me of that is if you look at verse 20, it says Adam called his wife's name Eve. Now let's just think about that for a minute. In today's time, who picks the name for a baby? The mom. <laughs> the parents, usually. The parents, right? They pick the name of the baby. In the text, Adam has already picked names for the animals, right? And God gave him dominion and authority over the earth, and he's calling the animals by name. Well, here, when his wife comes to him, he doesn't give her a name, which we're going to talk in a minute, that the name is given after the fall. But Adam names her after the fall. And I'm not saying she's an animal. I'm saying the fact that it shows that Adam still had this leadership, this authority, this dominion. He was the leader. If she's some independent, do-your-own-thing, she's going to pick her own name, right? You're not going to name me. I'm going to choose you my own name, right? That's what the modern feminists would be like. You're not naming me, right? And I think that's the picture of the text is that Adam is the leader. Now, we'll talk in a minute about the name Eve. It's very beautiful of, of the meaning and everything. But um, any other questions on verse 16? Comments? Yes. Also, um, <clears throat> this word is so odd to me. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Could it possibly mean that the woman's desire is going to be that a man take care of her? Obviously, women buck against that sometimes. Mm -hmm. But, and then, and you're going to rule over her? Or you just see it in the negative light? Well, this is, I just read it in context of a curse. Yeah. And so I'm trying to interpret it as a curse. Um, I don't see blessings as, as an interpretive guide in the, in the discussion. So um, that's, that's where I'm at on that. I think the desire and the ruling are linked together. Just like I think in the prior phrase, the two topics are linked together. The sorrow with the conception is a reference to one thing. And then here, the, the desire and the ruling, I think, is in reference to one general topic. Um, all right, anyone else? Good questions. All right. Verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, what, what jumps out to you about this? I don't know if it jumped out to you, but it jumped out to me. And in fact, I don't even know if I saw this in my study, but I saw it right now. Verse 17, the first thing that God says to Adam is, you have listened to the voice of your wife. Right? Did you notice that during, in the actual story, it doesn't say that she said anything, right? Remember how he said it just says she gave to him and he did eat. But here it said, God says, you have listened to the voice of your wife. So it appears like God is saying that Eve said something and you listened and then you followed her example. So that kind of jumped out to me in that sense. But he says, you have eaten from the tree which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. So he's holding him accountable for his, um, his sin. Even from creation, Eve was designed to be a helper to Adam, but in this instance, she was his downfall. Instead of Adam leading Eve, Eve led Adam. Thus God added enmity, and her rebellion would be a source of suffering for him. Um, you know, this 
relationship from verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband, there's a sense in which God is saying the curse has affected, he told Eve that this curse has affected the relationship with your husband. But now it's also true that as a husband, the curse has affected your relationship with your wife. So, you know, is there any relationship on earth that is not affected by the fall? The answer is no. But the ones that are most foundational are the most affected. The wife and husband relationship, and then the children relationship. But which relationship is affected more than any of these? The relationship of all of these with God, right? So the curse affects relationships. Now with Adam, it's going to not just be relational, it's going to be physical. Now with Eve, she has the pain, right? So that's the physical side, the, the suffering. For Adam, the, the physical suffering is in the area of the ground being cursed, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. You shall eat of the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Adam gets a longer list in a sense than Eve because the death knell, the death sentence is given to Adam. Do you notice that? It doesn't say of Eve that one day you'll die, right? That's not what God tells Eve. It just says your child relationship, your husband relationship, there'll be this pain. But to Adam, he talks about the ground is cursed. You're going to work, you're going to sweat, you're going to do these things, and then you're going to die. Um, so the ground is cursed. How many of you know that? It's very much cursed. I tried to plant um, some food, some plants at 4108 Oak Forest Drive. Miserable, pathetic failure. Um, I was used to the ground in Minnesota, which is a little more forgiving and a little easier to work with up there. And even up there, you could at least get it to grow, but you had to take care of it to get any fruit. I couldn't even get stuff to grow out of the ground when I just threw it in there. So I learned that you had to actually like mix it with stuff. Like down here, the dirt is rough. So you have to like, you know, do a lot of, um, I don't know what the word is. What's the word? Cultivating, yes. But you got to like, you have to actually almost create soil down here because the soil itself just doesn't work. So I agree, the ground is cursed, all right? It's a lot of work. You can sweat and spend a lot of time and sometimes you come up with nothing. And that was never the case before all this. So the curse of work being difficult was given to Adam. And, it, you know, I, I do find it interesting that it says of Adam that he would be the one to till the ground. He would be the one to sweat. He would be the one to, you know, suffer. Now, it's not to say that work isn't hard for women, because it is. But I think maybe there's just this idea of the provider aspect of the man in the text. that He's the one out providing. Eve's the one taking care of the kids, um, you know, in a general sense. I think, you know, that's a broad brush picture thing. Um, I don't think it's a sin if a woman ever works some other job or something like that. I don't think that. But it is true that there's a general sense in which moms take care of kids, especially young little ones, better than dads. And dads are more energetic and they're not the weaker vessel and so on. And they are more um, important, not important, but more uh, responsible in the area of um, providing funds, taking care of the family, that sort of thing. So we see the curse to Adam, and at the end of the curse then, he says, you're going to work with the ground because you were taken out of it. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Um, that is some, it's not very encouraging to remember that we are dust and we return to dust, but that is very, very true. Every person you see walking around in 150 years is going to be dust. And we are taken out of dust and we return to dust. And some people live as though they will live in this life forever. That is not the case. We are from the soil. And the soil, in a sense, is everything. I mean, our food comes from the soil. All the crops, the animals that we like to eat, eat the crops that come from the soil. Right? You have no soil, you have no life. And so there's a sense in which the soil is life. From it comes life. From it comes food, from it sustains the animals, it sustains humans, and the Bible says the ground is cursed. And I wonder if the ground were not cursed, if it would bring forth better food, whereby our bodies would never break down because we would be energized and repaired such that we would live and live and live and live. 
I think that's a very good suggestion. Um, also, even more on the depressing side, is that Adam the gardener, before the fall, became Adam the toilsome weed puller after the fall and would one day become Adam the fertilizer. This is Adam. And you know, it's, it's a little funny to think of it that way, but it's also really sad because God had such better plans for Adam, right? He didn't intend for him to be fertilizer, but this is the curse. This is, you know, the promised death that God promised him. You know, one thing that jumped out to me, and again, maybe I'm making too much of connection with this, but do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? He had a crown on his head, crown of thorns. And isn't it interesting that while Satan, while Jesus is crushing the head of Satan, he wears a crown of thorns. Those thorns we think of usually in the, in the idea of, you know, pain and poking him, and they certainly were, don't get me wrong. But I wonder if there isn't a subtle message that this is the curse. Jesus wears the curse for us. And he crushes the head of Satan on the cross. And he, as the second Adam, wins the day, you know, and... Because remember, remember how in, in John 3 I talked about the snake on the pole and how the snake was the source of the original temptation and Jesus would be lifted up, right? Well, when he was lifted up, he had this crown of thorns. And verse 18 says, thorns and thistles it shall bring to you and so on. I don't know, just a picture of the, the curse of the fall being worn by the Lord Jesus. We're going to stop here. Um, I want to quickly reference a couple verses in the New Testament and then we will conclude. So turn to Romans 5, if you would, with me. Romans chapter 5. I think having studied all of this, it makes Romans a little more clear, at least it did to me. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 14. And there, there was one thing that several details putting it together that made me understand something a little more clearly. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death passed on to all men, for all have sinned. For sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him who was to come. Okay, now let's, let's think this through a little bit. The death came into the world, not through Eve, the Bible says, but through Adam, right? Verse 12 tells us, by one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. You remember how when we studied Adam, that part of the curse to Adam was death. When God first gave the warning, don't eat of the tree, the curse of death was to the one who would eat of the tree. But it was given to Adam. The original command was given to Adam. And here it says death enters the world through Adam. Now, in verse 13, it's sort of a parenthesis for our study, but sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. It's not saying there's no accountability, but it is saying that there's no record of wrongdoings for a law not given. So, you know, the, the sins of the Mosaic law, they didn't really go on people's record before the law was ever given. Verse 14 Nevertheless, even though that be the case, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of Adam's transgression. Right? People were sinners in that period, not in the Mosaic law kind of way, because that, that was not a thing yet. The law hadn't come. But these people also did not sin in the same way as Adam sinned. And we must ask ourselves, well, what is that? But it, then it ends by saying, Adam, who is the figure of him who was to come. That is, Adam was the figure of the Christ to come, right? So when I read this passage, and when I read and study carefully what we've read already, and one more text I want to look at is 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy 2. Let's read... Let's read verse 11 through 15, okay? 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Let the woman learn in silence with all submission. 
But I do not allow a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man, but she is to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. However, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I'm not going to get into every detail of this, but what I wanted to point out is verse 14 says, Adam was not deceived. Adam was not deceived, and God told Adam, you listen to the voice of your wife. So the snake did deceive Eve, but Eve did not deceive Adam. And the snake didn't deceive Adam. And this tells me that Adam sinned in a way differently than Eve sinned. When Eve sinned, she was deceived. Adam did not sin in this way. He sinned with a, I believe, with an open mind. He remembered the command of God. He properly understood the command of God. And he chose to say, no, I'm going to eat the fruit. And some people think he chose his wife over God. Now, um, there's a sense in which that's true. You know, how much we put that all together, I guess, is a little bit in his own mind and heart. But the Bible says here Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. She was in the transgression. I'm sorry. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So she went across the line in, in confusion. But Adam went across the line in clarity. And I think that does help us to understand the story a little better when we see these different verses and we, we put it together. Okay, so I think uh, we're going to stop there. We'll pick up in verse 20. Let me just give you a little teaser. It's very interesting that Adam named his wife Eve after these events. He didn't name her Eve right when she was brought to him. He didn't name her Eve when she was holding the fruit. He names her Eve now. When we come back next week, we'll see why that's such a beautiful thing. Any questions or comments as we go? So in what way did the people sin from Adam to Moses, to Moses? Like that the woman was confused and the, the man con continually you know, chooses his wife's affections or whatever before right. over God's? Or well, I'm not completely clear on exactly what that means. It says that they sinned in a different way than Adam. And so it could mean the idea of deception, that the sin of that era was more of deception than of open-minded things. I, I guess I tend to wonder if it just doesn't mean they didn't sin the way he did because he was coming to it in a position of innocence where he had not sinned before then. For instance, he didn't have a sin nature and that sort of thing. So the sinning that happened after was a little different than that. And even though people are rebellious, yes, there's also some deception mixed into that. Whereas for Adam, the Bible says he was not deceived. And so, you know, there was an op a clear-mindedness to his, to his sin that even others in other eras didn't have quite that level of. Again, that's, that's heavy on opinion, okay? Just right. Okay. Anyone else? Question or comment? Okay. Well, I was hoping to get to the whole, like, Eve thing and some of the further down. I hope you're not too depressed by all this. Verse 15 reminds us, Satan's head will be crushed, and uh, what a joyous uh, thought that is. It has been done, and it will be done in fullness as we go along here. Satan will not get the last word. What a rejoicing thought that is. Let's be dismissed in prayer, and we can go. We do